Mindfulness and concentration are two elements of the, what we cultivate in meditation practice. They are on a continuum and they diverge at a particular place. So there needs to be a certain amount of collectiveness of mind in order to be clear about what's happening. And so there's a place in which the concentration and the mindfulness are parallel. They need to simultaneously develop in order to be able to see what's arising. And then there's a place where concentration and mindfulness part ways where concentration becomes absorbed in, where we are absorbing into the object and Mindfulness is the ability just to know, watch the changing sensations, changing characteristics within within an experience. And so, after a certain level, they they part they part ways. And it's often the case that people mix the two of them up, particularly because when you're spending you know a time on retreat and there's less impact, less contact, less decision making, less. Um, more more meditation, the mind can tend to settle, and so we can tend to forget that mindfulness and concentration have two slightly different elements to that, and mix them up so that when the mind gets really much more concentrated, we think of that as what meditation is. We associate that as what meditation is, and then you know when we leave the retreat situation and we're having to deal with the the impact of all that's going on and the situation is not set up to support concentration and there isn't a lot of meditation in a formal context that's happening and there's a lot of impact and decision making it's quite natural that there's not the same level of concentration and so we think we're not meditating because we've associated the deeper concentration that we experience on a meditation retreat with what meditation is now there's the ability within anything that's happening to be able just to stop and say what's happening right now. So that question is relevant at any point, at any time, no matter what's going on and no matter what our mind state is, what's happening right now. And when we can find that we're restless, you know, so the mind is maybe jumpy and all over the place, we can just know that the mind is restless. When we know that the mind's restless, there's mindfulness present with the restlessness. That mindfulness present with the restlessness does not automatically mean that it becomes concentrated, but we are aware of what's happening. So, when there are different kinds of mind states that are arising that are a little bit more challenging to be with, like a restless mind or a contracted mind or a distracted mind, you know, the Satipatthana Sutta, the third foundation of mindfulness, describes all of these, you know. One knows a, a, a distracted mind is a distracted mind. A, a lustful mind is a lustful mind. An angry mind is an angry mind. An expanded mind is an expanded mind. A contracted mind is a contracted mind. So the third foundation of mindfulness is very, very, very clear. Just knowing what's arising is mindfulness. That is the way that we're attending to the uh, objects of our mind, is by knowing that that's what's happening. So when the mind is restless or distracted or contracted, it doesn't say change it 
and make it concentrated. It says know it, that that's what's happening. And that is how one is skillfully attending to what's arising in the mind. So when there is a aversion to restless mind, then that needs to be the object of meditation, the aversion. So there is the immediate experience, and then there's a reaction to it. And often the reaction to it has a lot more kind of juice in it than the actual thing itself, in terms of wanting or not wanting or wishing or hoping or all the rest of that. And so if we change our focus of attention from attending and knowing that the mind is restless to attending and knowing the fact that we don't want it to be restless or we resent it that it's restless or we're bored silly with it being restless then we can open up to the quality of mind and then see, well, what is needed in order to work with it. Now, when the mindfulness is strong, again, sometimes it's possible just to open up to the fact, well, this is what's happening, and that's all that's needed. In the same way that you were describing earlier, that bringing awareness to something sometime by itself can dissipate the thought or the whatever. So sometimes that's all that's needed is just to bring awareness to the resistance or to the resentments or to whatever is going on so that there's like, I don't want to hang out with restlessness. I don't want it. Get me out of here. So then discernment needs to come in, okay? And this is part of the problem where we get mixed up because we have associated meditation as sitting still and being with what's arising. And so discernment needs to actually question whether that's actually what's needed right now. Now sometimes what's happening is is the body is a little bit tense. And so this whole restless movement is really a cover-up for the fact that our body is not very relaxed. And so if we can see, for example, that that might be the case, then rather than work with the mental formation of restlessness, we need to actually work with the body being tense, which is actually uh, one of the conditions that are giving rise to it. So the discernment that comes in when there's restlessness, and get me out of here, I don't want to deal with it, needs to actually look and see, well, what's actually going on here? Is this actually something that I need to work with as a mental experience or a mental phenomenon? Or is there something that this is actually um, an, a masking or an expression of that needs to be attended to in a different way? And that's a quality of discernment, not a quality of persistence or determination or conviction. It's a quality of discernment, of being able to check out what's really happening and what is the right way of responding in that particular situation. Now, many of us, for years and years and years, think if we're sitting in meditation, we're supposed to stay sitting meditating. But that's the thing we're supposed to do. We come and we sit, we stay seated. And that's the wrong way to think because it's like it fixes a box around what meditation is and it eliminates a whole huge avenue of discernment, which is, is that it might be that what we need is to stand. Okay? So we have this kind of fixed idea that once we start sitting, we have to stay sitting until the end of the sitting, and that's kind of the rule. Well, who made up that rule? Who's enforcing that rule? Who said that that's the rule? It might be that what's happening is our body is tense sitting, and the tension is creating a kind of agitation, and the agitation is expressing itself as restlessness. And then the not wanting to hang out with restlessness is is a kind of like, in some kind of perverted way, a wisdom response to, it's not helpful for me to hang out and sit for 45 minutes with a situation that's actually not working for me. 
But rather than pick up the interest and actually inquire and see what's really going on, there's a kind of like, well, I'm just going to be a good meditator and hang out with this until it's over and God help me and everybody else. So what's needed is to inquire and what's needed is to explore and what's needed is to see if sitting is actually what is the posture that's correct posture at this moment. There's nothing wrong with standing. Nothing wrong with standing. Sometimes when we stand, the whole kind of energy configuration of our systems changes. It's no longer so stagnant. And then after we've been standing for a while, then we can sit down and then we're not restless anymore. Not because there's been any kind of a magic thing that we've done with the mental formations of our mind, but because the bodily condition has shifted such that it's not supporting it any longer. So then there's a question of when are we moving out of a sense of desire and when are we moving out of, out of a sense of compassion? And again, that's a question of discernment that needs to check into what is our motivation. So if our motivation is jumping around in order to, in order to release the, desi- the, 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 the discomfort through desire, then that's going to eventually have a result that we're going to have to contend with. When we act from desire, there's usually a result. But when it's coming from wisdom or compassion, it has a very different result. It doesn't have the same effect. It doesn't have the same residue. And you can't tell by the activity. You have to check out the intention, which is another level of discernment. Where is my motivation actually coming from? So some of this low-level resistance stuff is actually just an inquiry to wake up to a little bit more of what's needed here, rather than kind of put oneself into a box and tap down the lid with the nails and just say, you know, this is, this is the container and just suffer with it. Check it out. Is that really what's needed? Now, you do yoga, and so you can have a sense of what happens to your body, the sense of it, it expands, and as it expands, you have a more sense of this spaciousness that happens with it. But I also have noticed that the same thing can happen with qigong when you're actually moving energy through the body, you know. And so, you know, you can stand, stand like um, a tree, which is very still, and it's incredibly dynamic posture. And standing like a tree for just a few minutes, and your whole energetic system is completely different than before. So... Part of the problem is, is is that we have kind of gotten used to like modes of being, and we forget that we can constantly interact with our our mind body system and 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 work with what's actually going on. Now the training that I have mostly received has been in a monastery where there was a lot of there was mixture. There were times for group practice and there was times for individual practice. But when there was group practice, like we were always, we were in the room at the same time. So if we were sitting, we would all be in the room at the same time. And then after decades, then if we were in the room sitting, then we could stand. So we were still in the room, but we could actually change the posture. Okay. And because everybody's sitting, it's not very often that people would stand, but occasionally people would stand. So, like, for example, if I was falling asleep and I didn't have the kind of clarity to stay with the sleepiness sitting, I would stand. And that would help, usually, a lot. 
And there is a there is a tremendous value with with um, working with groups and seeing what's arising and dealing with it in a context where we're all in the room. So that's kind of like the container. We're all in the room and we stay in the room until the sitting is over. You know, there's a value in just being able to work with what's arising that way. There's also a value in learning how to tune into what it is that we each need and respond according to that. And, you know, it's not that one has more value over the other one, but they're different and it's good to be able to do both. And so one of the challenges of a, of, a, of a kind of a container that has got a very clear form associated is, is, is that there isn't a peer pressure to do what everyone else is doing and not necessarily to be able to check in to see what one needs and to respond that way. And that can help us develop the ability to work with whatever is arising. And it also can help us develop sheep mentality where we're just following what everybody else is doing and we're not actually being as responsive as we need to be because we don't feel we have within our our, our remit the kind of permission to, to do what's necessary. So one of the things that I just absolutely loved about being at the Ramana Ashram in southern India was is that they didn't have a fixed schedule. So in most every monastery or place that I've ever been to, you know, there was a schedule of stuff that you did and you did together and you did this and you did that. And there was often times that you had free time, but there was always the things that you did together. And, you know, certain people had to and other people were allowed not to, but there was like a kind of a form of who got to do what and what we did and what we did together. And the Ramana Ashram was like, there were, there were lots of things that were there happening but there was no fixed schedule of where you needed to be at any particular time. You could pick and choose how you wanted to practice. And then it was fabulous because you would have, you know, a shrine and you'd have people chanting. And while people chanting, on the floor chanting, you'd have other people circumambulating the shrine and other people bowing to the shrine. And so it's like even in the same space with one kind of main thing happening, you'd have a whole bunch of different ways that people were, 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 were participating. And there was something about that which I just found so refreshing. That it's like there you can find your own practice, and it was considered culturally acceptable to do that, you know. So in most monasteries, you know, if we're sitting, then it would be weird if somebody was standing there bowing. Or it would be weird if somebody was walking, okay? But here was a place where that was okay to do that you know, in this one main hall. And then there was another main hall that was mostly just for sitting. But that main hall for sitting, there was no fixed time of when you came and when you left. You could come whenever you want. You could leave whenever you want. There was no schedule, okay? And then there was a sacred mountain. And it was considered completely acceptable practice to go hang out on the mountain. That was like absolutely valid practice, was just to go hang out with the mountain, and it's like, oh my goodness, I was like, ah, this is so much in my element. I was so delighted to be in a place where I could practice the way I wanted to with the kind of time frameworks that I wanted to in the kind of ways that I wanted to. And there was no sense of pressure or shame or have to or must. You know, you could participate in the way that you wanted to. And for me, that opened up my energy so that I had lots of energy to practice, you know. So I'd get up early, I'd stay up late, I'd do lots of practice. And it was it worked for me. It was really, really worked for me. 
So, you know, one of the challenges is, is that I recognize this, is, is that when you've got people who are new to meditation or new to monastic life or whatever, that they need a different kind of container. I mean, this, I went to the Ramana Ashram after, what, 25 years of meditation practice? You know, what, 15 years of, 10, 15 years of monastic life? So, you know, the kind of things that a person needs at different levels are different. You know, and sometimes people really need the support of a group. And so to have a permission that everybody can do whatever they want means that that the group doesn't feel like a group, you know, because everybody's doing whatever they need. So I think what's needed is, is that people are attuning to what is necessary at different stages of their practice. And for the first five years, you know, that it might be helpful that they have more clear boundaries and more time with the group and more sense of being able to practice with other people together, that that might be helpful. And that after five years, they have more sense of being able to pick and choose what they do, when they do, and how they do it. And so, you know, if you're sitting and you're feeling restless, to really inquire, do I need to be sitting? Should I be standing? Or should I be walking? Should I be outside in the fresh air walking? You know? And to have that be the way you practice, rather than, I have to sit because it's time to sit together. Yeah? And see what happens when you give yourself permission to practice that way. If rather than, oh, I resent practice, it's like, oh, what do I need to do right now? How can I respond to this that actually gives me the interest and the, the, the fortitude to be with what's necessary? It's like it completely turns it on its head. From like, oh, I have to sit here and be with this, to... How do I need to be with this in order for it to work for me? You know, totally different question. Totally different question. So sometimes what happens with the resistance is it's a kind of voice of, it just needs to be reinterpreted, it needs to be re-looked at. Of this is not just a kind of like, you know, a grumble or grumpy or crabby thing. This is a kind of an indication of that, that, that doing it that way is not what I need. And can I find another way of being with this that is working for me? And what would that look like? And that's where it's helpful to give permission to be more flexible with the form in terms of, well, what are the options? You know, what are the options? And so, certainly in a situation like this, you have absolute permission to stand up, to walk, to go outside. There's no reason why you have to stay in here for 45 minutes and be miserable, because it's not what you need. Okay? When you have a little bit more um, settledness of mind, then you might have within yourself the capacity to work with the resistance within just sitting. But not to force yourself to do it because it's the right thing. Yeah? So it's very contextual, very contextual. And one of the things that has been really um, fascinating for me in these last three years that I've been living here in Colorado, because I've been away from a community and not having times where there's like set points of this is what we're all doing together, it's both very challenging as well as very interesting to see, you know, where are the places that I've shaped myself around the form that aren't helpful 
what is my idea about what a, a meditator is that's no longer serving me? And what do I need to do with those boxes that I've created or that were helped being created by others or the context that I have been living in that don't work for me, you know? So it's not as if I disband my interest to meditate by working with the form, but I need to investigate where my energy flows, where it gets stuck, and why. Now, Ajahn Chah was a very interesting teacher because, you know, I, I, I never lived with him while he was teaching. I just heard stories of other people who did. And from what I understand, he'd get to know a person and then he would really nail them on their weak spots. So if somebody was totally in love with Ajahn Chah, he'd send them away. And so, you know, don't, you know, go away, don't come back, and I want to see you for several years, or whatever, you know, go to the next monastery, you know, and deal with that teacher. Or, you know, if somebody wanted to be alone, he would insist that they practice in the group, you know. Or Ajahn Sumedho, you know, he liked, he loved to meditate, you know, he just loved to meditate, and he didn't like to work. And so, you know, there was this one huge project of making a road, and, uh, and Ajahn Sumedho asked permission if he could meditate in his cabin, Kuti, instead. And so, you know, Ajahn Chah, you know, he was very, um, he, he, was, he was masterful the way he would nail you. So he, he gathered the whole, he said, let me ask the Sangha. So he gathered the entire assembly of monks who'd been like, you know, on a kind of chain gang doing, the, doing this road work and said, you know, Ajahn Sumedho would like permission to be excused from the work so that he can meditate, you know. And of course, there's just no way he could do that. He couldn't, once, once it was revealed to the entire community that this was what his intention was, he couldn't follow through with it. It was too, it, it was too ridiculous, you know. So he wouldn't answer directly. He would just humiliate you enough so that you'd have to figure it out for yourself. <laughs> you know, so Ajahn Pasana said that, you know, of all of his disciples, and he had many monastic disciples, you know, so many of him of them found him so unbelievably irritating that they didn't want to live with him because he was he would he would just nail you so badly right where you were not wanting to be nailed that they didn't want to have they didn't want to have anything to do with him so they'd come once a year for a week and that would be as much as they would they would because he'd just nail you you know whatever it was he'd nail you you know and i think i think he was a, a magnificent teacher you know absolutely brilliant teacher and one story, I love this, because, you know, this is just typical. So these were all extremely serious, very dedicated forest monks. You know, they don't muck around. They are really interested in practice, okay? They are serious. They are committed. This is, like, kind of, like, really serious group of people. So they had a kind of rule that on the moon night, they had a vigil that would go from whatever, from afternoon until four o'clock in the morning so it was an all-night meditation vigil and you're welcome to come into the meditation hall whenever you wanted to but once you were there you couldn't leave until Ajahn Chah dismissed you so he was like king of the of the of the castle and you could come but you couldn't leave until he gave you permission so that was the rule 
So, you know, they're all very serious meditators, and they, you know, very silent, very strict, very diligent, very concentrated, very committed, very austere, very, you know, good with Vinny. You know, they're all fabulous meditators. This is Ajahn Chah Monastery. Fabulous, fabulous. So it was one full moon night, and everybody had gathered as they had done, and they were all sitting in the hall, and one of the villagers was there. And so he brought the villager into the meditation hall, and he's talking to the village about gossip, you know, just gossip. You know, how many chickens have got, and how many sheep have they got, and who's pregnant, and who's dating, and just gossip, you know. And they're talking loudly, and they're talking loudly gossip in the middle of the meditation hall for hours and hours and hours it's not ending it's hours and hours it's going on for hours and the monks are furious they're furious they are so furious they're interrupting his meditation and he can't concentrate and what is he doing and this is ridiculous and can you know and they can't leave because that's the rule they can't leave is going on for hours. You know, politics and kings and queens and who's having sex and who's, you know, I mean, it's just like going on for hours and hours and hours. And then Ajahn Chah is looking at these monks and they just finally is twinkling. It's like, are you going to get it? Are you going to just practice with the way it is? Are you going to get it? Or are you going to battle this? You know? What are you going to do? So he would nail people, you know, and these extremely serious meditators, he'd nail them by having non-stop chit-chat gossip nonsense in the middle of their meditation for a whole night long until they got it, that that's what they had to practice with. You know. So whatever it was that you were stuck on, he'd nail you. So in our own personal situation, we need to be the Ajahn Chah. We need to actually nail our own numbers. We need to find out where we're stuck and figure out, you know, remedies and antidotes to help unstick us, you know. And so when we are so incredibly diligent and so careful and so methodical, then we need to figure out how to do it so that we're not doing it like that. You know, we need to be. We need to actually figure out how can we be more responsive. How can we be more playful? How can we be more curious and creative? So it's not in any way to bring out the slander monster. You know, to start you know criticizing and saying you know all of that. It's not that. It's to bring the complement of factors of things that are not as well developed and bring them into play. You know. So it's like do everything backwards. If you are, you know, there's not out of kind of just out of foolishness, but when there's a mind that has the tendency to do it all one particular way, just see if we can do sometimes different. What would it look like to do it different? Not to add chaos and confusion, but just to see where we're stuck. You know, how are we habituated into something that's just comfortable because we're used to it? And then see what begins to shape up in terms of how are we responsive to what's arising. And what does that look like? Because meditation is not about going into some kind of mode. It's about being very responsive and learning how to work with what's arising and doing it in a way where the mind settles out, the body settles out, and one can see very clearly. One can let go of wanting things to be a certain way. That's what meditation is. And there's an 
awful lot of creative ways that you can do that. You know, I was at the Forest Refuge. You know, the Forest Refuge is a place for serious meditators. And I was in there, and there was a woman with her back on the floor and her feet on the chair. You know, so she did it backwards. <laughs> It's like sometimes you need to do it backwards. You're not out of rebelliousness and not out of, you know, kind of an attitude, but sometimes you need to do it backwards in order to find out what box you need to be in that works for you. Because we get so habituated to want to do the right thing and fit in and and not be obtrusive or uh, obstruct anybody or that we're not actually attentive to what we need. You know, one of the other things that has been really an interesting inquiry for me is just how incredibly deep the longing to belong actually is. I mean, normally we don't have a real register of it because it's just sort of like, again, it's just it's operating so um, like wallpaper that we don't actually have contrast to see it. But we want to fit in. We want to do the right thing. We don't want to be seen as being somehow, you know rude or intrusive or inappropriate or we don't want to do any of those things and so oftentimes what that means or the way that translates is is that we lose connection with ourself out of fear to want to fit into what the right shape is supposed to look like so we're not attending to what is really present because our most of our attention is to what are the rules of the social situation so that we're not going to be outside of them. The longing to belong is just in- incredibly deep. It is so incredibly deep. And that's why, you know, for um, certain cultures, you know, to ostracize a person from their group is akin to killing them, you know, because... The need to belong to a, a, a family group or a clan group or a village cluster or a tribal group is so deep that if you are cast out from that group, it's like death. And in some situation, the reality is often the case that you cannot survive if you're not actually part of the group because the group needs to be together in order to deal with the kind of circumstances of what they're having to navigate. So it's not just a social death, it can also sometimes be a physical death. You just simply cannot survive if you're on your own. And so, you know, the psychological mechanisms for wanting to belong are there for a very good reason. They're not there, it's not like some kind of a mismatched wiring. It has very good reasons for being there. But it comes in into situations where sometimes it's not actually what what is helpful or it actually cuts across our other need, which is, you know, our interest to awaken or our aspiration to awaken. And so then we have to see, again, using discernment, you know, what is the consequence going to be if I stand up or if I do walking now? Is it going to cause a chaos in the community or is it okay? Is there enough space to do that or not? And in every... Every situation you're in, that's going to be a discernment that's going to need to be navigated. 
because in some places it's going to be categorically rude to do that. And in other situations, it's absolutely acceptable to do that. And so the discernment then is to figure out what situation you're in and what are the rules and how much edge can you bring into that situation without being disruptive. And part of that is also getting a handle on this deep-seated longing to belong and how that is navigating and whether one's discernment is accurate or coming from a, uh, a distorted fear around not wanting to do anything that will have one being cast out from the group, which is actually not what's actually happening in that situation. So part of our human development, you know, in growing up as a person is to, you know, to, f- is to work out our relationships and where we do belong and who we are part of and in terms of family or gender or sexual orientation or politics or political views or, you know, all of these things that are part of figuring out as we grow up. We need to understand who we are. And within some of these things that we figure out, we can watch that they can change. They're not fixed. Or that they can be one way in a certain part of our life and another way in another part of our life. And so, you know, who we take ourselves to be is, is shifting territory. Because some of the things that we normally locate ourselves around can also shift. So there's a, a meditation teacher by the name of Katriana Reed. And I first met her, Christopher Reed. She was a man and then became a woman. She's a brilliant meditation teacher. And I read something that she wrote, absolutely exquisite, about the intertidal zone of uncertainty. You know, what it was like as a transgender person with this kind of change of not being able to locate yourself. And the exquisite exploration of that territory was just so um, beautifully articulated in terms of the, the level of the uncertainty of not knowing. She's very comfortable in her own skin, but she understands the territory that she trans you know that she traversed in order to get there. So we have personal developmental work to. Um, understand who we are and where we belong. And then we have a spiritual work to let go of that. To not hold any of those things as a fixed identity that is not subject to change. And they both are important to do. Today is Thanksgiving, and I just so loved, you know, having an opportunity this morning to go out on the rocks and watch the sunrise and have breakfast together, and just to have such a, um, a a loving meal that was made with so much incredible care, and and uh, share that together in silence. It was just so so tender and heartfelt and beautiful. It felt so natural and simple and right. So lovely. And then moving into spending time with the family, which also felt really lovely, you know. And 
um, you know, sometimes spending time with family doesn't always feel lovely. It can feel, it can have edges to it or complicated to it or, you know, one can feel like one doesn't really feel like one belongs here somehow, even though it's one's, it's one's family, but somehow it doesn't feel like it's where one feels most easeful. And so, you know, the whole experience of family and the, and the longing or the hoping that it can feel differently than the way it feels, you know, that, that it might feel a certain way and it doesn't, it feels this way, you know. There might be more sense of seeing or knowing who I am and there isn't, it's just this way, you know. And so when I can meet all of those things and then attend to it from my side of the equation of of releasing the expectation or the wanting it to be different and just register that this is what's here. This is as much as they see me. This is as much as they ask about me. This is as much as they reach out to me. This is this is what's here. Then I can engage with family and feel the loveliness of it rather than the agony of it. But in order to feel the loveliness of it, I have to know where I have to be able to see myself, I have to reach out to myself, I have to be able to acknowledge myself, and then let go of that longing. I have to meet it, to see it, to honor it, and let go of it. And I can't let go of it unless I have a place to let go into, unless I have a refuge, I have a place of resting that can help and hold and support all of those human needs and longings all of that wanting and know that that's not who I ultimately am. That where I find my place in this world is not in getting those things met, but in someplace else. And what is that? Where is that? How do I know that? So, you know, for myself, these last three years has been probably more challenging than I've ever known about, you know, the sense of belonging. Where do I fit in and where do I belong and who are my people and how do I locate myself and is it okay, is it safe, is it supportive enough, is there enough here that can hold me? And, you know, I've been through all kinds of distress around that inquiry, that exploration because of expecting it or looking at it or hoping that it be a particular way. It wasn't. It was this way. But then there's some kind of rubbing. You know, it's like, you know, I don't have Ajahn Chah nailing me. I've got circumstances nailing me. It's like, you know, in a place that's like the rawest, the most tender place in me, the circumstances is just nailing me there again and again and again and again and again. Is there sufficiency with things just as they are? Where's the suffering? What is needed right now? How can I respond to it? And for me, it's been a fascinating inquiry to see that I can, I can have this deep-seated longing for, you know, connection with other monastics or community or all this kind of thing, a wanting for something different than the way things are. And then I go and be with the rocks and I just drop the sense of me being a separate being in time and space. And I enter into a place of just awareness. And I don't feel separate. 
and I don't feel lonely, and I don't feel like I need anything. I feel like I'm completely sufficient, that there is total sufficiency, and there is total support. Because I haven't separated myself out, looking for something that looks like me to join me in my separateness. I've dropped the separation, and I feel the abundance of the presence, and there doesn't need to be anything joining me because I'm joined. The eye has shifted. There is joining. And so it's amazing to me that I can go from like this just agony, you know, this incredible, excruciating loneliness, and enter into an experience of non-separation and the problem dissolves. Where was the problem? Where is the problem? Where is the solution to the problem? So the inquiry that allows me to practice that way is supported by a kind of ruthless and radical honesty that is willing not just to look at the surface of things, but to look at underneath what's really going on here. And it never ceases to amaze me how the surface appearance of things can be a complete cover-up job for what's actually going on underneath. And part of my interest is to develop the discernment to be able to get underneath and to figure out, well, if it's not what it's looking like on the surface, then what is it actually, is it underneath? What's going on? So that when I know what's going on, I can respond to it in a way that is supportive. And that has been what has helped me look at form and dissolve form and create form and allow form looking at what's underneath and being willing to hang out with not knowing until it feels right to settle on something so enough for me does that answer do there more things that come up for you Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.